You're listening to Jimmy Pissarro from City Lights Church. But in particular, we're going to be looking at how a pastor and a father intersect. And so if you're following along in scripture or on the screen, our two main texts this morning, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and then we're going to cover 1 Samuel chapter 15 all the way through 2 Samuel. So basically what I'm going to need is for somebody to pick, like different people in the congregation to pick a chapter in either 1 or 2 Samuel, and we're going to read them all, all the way through. But I think in order to save time, we're just going to do it all at once. So um, that was a joke, and it did not go over well. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cross out the rest of my jokes, and uh, we'll have like a page of sermon. Just kidding. All right, here we go. So, pastor, father. If we were in a Catholic church, this would be pretty easy to understand, right? Because they call the priest the father. He's the priest of the local congregation. They give him that title. They say father so-and-so. That's not how I understand necessarily the role of a pastor. I believe they uh, intersect. I don't believe they're the same. Um, In scripture... The word pastor is not used that often when it is in Ephesians 4, 11, 12. It tells you that shepherds or teachers, shepherd is another word for pastor, are called by God and exist to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. So quite literally, pastors exist not just to do ministry. They exist to equip you, the saints, the congregation, to do ministry. So an elder board or, or maybe a, a group of people in church might have this misconception that a pastor is the one that they go to and they say, oh, you, you're supposed to do ministry. No, no, their job is to equip you to do ministry. So, so at, thinking about the church as a family, we exist, right? Our, our uh, mission statement is we exist that the people of Northeast Pennsylvania find their ultimate joy in Christ. And there's a second tagline, through the teaching of the Lord, word and power of the spirit. Okay. I need to memorize that. It's not, I don't sleep and and, and wake up with it yet. I'm working on it. But, so so the pastor exists, right, to equip us to do ministry. And so a shepherd does what? They shepherd sheep, right? So a sheep is a, a different species than a person, okay? So the role of a pastor at, at times, intersects with a father, and at other times, it, it doesn't. So a sheep is obeying the pastor when it, when it does sheep things. It's, it not obeys, it doesn't follow the pastor. When it, one, gets lost, it does things that aren't sheep-like, like bites people, right? That's not what a sheep's supposed to do. Or the third thing is that it just might not be a sheep. So Jesus says, my sheep will know my voice, right? They'll follow me. And uh, a pastor's role is to pastor sheep. And, and a sheep, again, they know the, the voice of their pastor. They know, they know what the pastor's saying, and they agree with it. They put themselves in agreement with it. <clears throat> and when they don't do those things, or they're not a sheep altogether, which you would have a wolf, right? A wolf is somebody who maybe comes into a church or comes into a, a flock and in some ways damages or disrupts what, what's going on there. So we're going to talk a little bit about that too. But before we get into 1 Corinthians, I want us to think about what qualifications are required of a pastor 
or how the New Testament describes them as a group of elders. Um, thankfully, when it talks about qualifications of an elder or a pastor, it, uh, it's multiple times in Scripture. So I'm going to share from Titus chapter 1, verse 6 to 9. It says, An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so we can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So, in the New Testament, the early church, they had local congregations and communities, right? There wasn't 50 denominations. It was kind of pretty straightforward. There was converts to Christianity. They had multiple elders or multiple pastors over those congregations. This was the qualifications for those people who would oversee the church. Oversight is, is utterly important. If we had no oversight, we would all just do whatever we want. And we would try and figure it out on our own. But the role of an overseer, the role of a pastor, is not just to preach. But again, what is it? It's to equip you to do works of ministry. And making sure that you do them, right, as, as Scripture tells us, as God directs us in, in, in prompting in obedience to the Holy Spirit. So a pastor knows, gets to know, what his congregation is capable of doing. Right? He doesn't ask more than them than they're capable of. He understands through relationship what they're capable of. And then says, hey, how can I encourage you in doing that? Right? In some ways, right, oversight sounds a lot like what a father does. But I think it still does differ, and we're going to get to that in a second. But I want to talk about oversight, too, um, through a personal story, because I like to tell stories, because this happened to me yesterday. And uh, it's interesting how sometimes oversight works in a context that's not a church. So I wrestle on weekends. And um, normally, just do your thing, and, and hopefully it goes well, and people cheer and people boo. But last night, when I was, when I was wrestling, uh, the match, you know, we, we kind of messed up a little bit in certain spots, and it, it went over time. So after the match was over, I went into the locker room, right? And uh, I'm introducing you to a new culture right now, but... I walked into the locker room, and there was this guy who is the champion of the promotion that uh, I was working for, and, and he's about Ben's size, probably actually a little bigger. And uh, he's the first person that I, I get greeted, me and the guy that I wrestled, in the locker room. And he's like, you went over on time. He's like, if, we were, if this was an actual TV taping, you know, you guys were the first match. You're the, you're the low guys on the totem pole. You went over on time. That's not good. And so I was already upset because the match kind of messed up. The flow was was a little off, and uh, so I got a little bit defensive, and I was like, well, you know, I wasn't keeping track of the time. I was like, that's usually the referee's job, and just started making a couple excuses, and um, one of the guys I train with, who's a little bit more experienced afterwards, he kind of overheard. He's like, hey, like, I know, you know, some of the things that happened weren't your fault. He's like, but that guy's the champion. Like, you can't, like, just get defensive like that. Like, you need to just kind of listen to it, take it, and uh, understand kind of where your role is. So I understood where he was coming from, and I was like, do not let me leave here until I talk to him. And so I was, like, kind of nervous about when that was a good time to do. But luckily, he stepped outside for a breath of fresh air, so I just followed him out and, and then talked to him and said, hey, look, I'm sorry for, for kind of giving you some back talk. I was like, I appreciate the uh, constructive criticism. Thank you. Um, 
and I understand that you're just trying to make me better. And uh, he really was, because if, if it was a TV taping and I was getting paid to do this, right, then if I went over on time, there would be serious consequences. So how does that relate to pastoral ministry? I think it's, for me, it's a perspective of honor, right? So if we have this understanding that whenever a pastor comes to us with, with either constructive criticism, correction, or even asking you to do something, right, usually it's because he already sees something or he's trying to, like, f- call you and encourage you to do what, you, what you're already good at, what God's called you to do. He's trying to affirm the gift that, that's within you. And uh, that's a good thing. Um, theologian Karl Rahner would say this, though. So we're talking about pastors, but he would say this. Every baptized believer is consecrated a pastor. Okay? Think about that. That's going to be one of the questions we talk about in a home group, about what does that exactly mean? Every baptized believer is consecrated a pastor. In other words, in baptism, you begin a process by which you at some point ex- are expected to lead others in the way of life through cr- Christ. Your life, our lives, should become ones worth following. So this is why I like a, a wrestling locker room, because there's kind of this structure that, sa- that says, however new you are, right, You'll respond to the criticism or correction of somebody else, right, who has much more experience or in, in some cases uh, in leadership, right? You'll respond to the person that has more experience, has traveled the paths that, that, have, that you're walking on now. And then someone else will come along who maybe is less experienced or new to the faith, and they'll start following somebody's example, right? And in baptism, you basically agree that you're starting off on a path to follow Christ, and then at some point, you're going to be expected to model that for somebody else. So I, I promised you I would get to fatherhood, right? Sp- what a spiritual father or a mother is and how that might, again, intersect with a pastor. So if every baptized believer is consecrated a pastor, how does that relate to being a father or a mother in a church setting? We can't necessarily judge a spiritual father or a father in general by the same criteria we judge a pastor because sometimes, as, is, as you may or may not have experienced, um, sheep or even children don't always obey. So what do you do when you have somebody who's just disobedient or, or an extent, to an extent lost? So a father's job, it's not just to lead, right? It's also to love a child. So a pastor might not necessarily love all of his sheep the way he would love a child. Does that, does that make sense? All right, so maybe experience needs to t- teach us this. By a show of hands, how many people in this room would say they have spent a significant season of their lives in two or more churches by a show of hands? Okay, so everybody else, that means you fall into the category of one church. So just keep them up. Sorry, this is an exercise that requires audience participation. Um, how about three or more? If it's three or more, leave your hands up. Uh, my hand's still up. Four or more. Okay, my hand's still up. We got a few. Five or more, significant season. Okay, there's three of us. Um, I have been a part of five churches in my walk of faith. The church I grew up in. Then when I was in Virginia for college, I was a part of one church for three years another church for about nine months, then I moved back home to my same church that I grew up in, 
Then eventually I took a job at another church as a youth and young adults leader. And then um, I moved here. Is that five? Or is that four? That's five? Okay, I'm glad you guys are counting because I was trying to and forgot. I don't know how that happened. Anyway, now how many of you have left that church, and this is going to require vulnerability. You don't necessarily have to raise your hands for this. But think about it. How many of you left that church because of wounds or frustrations associated with the leadership? Think about it. Don't, you don't have to raise your hand, but think about it. And so sometimes we don't like the way people lead, and other times we don't like the way people father. There's not a whole lot you can do, though, about if somebody's your father, right? Your father's your father, your father. So Paul has this to say in 1 Corinthians 4, 1 to 5. We are now in the scripture, the main text. He says this. He prepares them. He says, this then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ. This is 1 Corinthians 1 through 5. As servants of Christ, as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear. But that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Jump down to verse 15. It says this, Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you, To imitate me. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Paul's talking about fatherhood because he, in a sense, is responsible for the faith, the birth of faith in the lives of believers. So, as an apostle, as a father to this church, He presented them with the gospel, they responded, and through their faith in Christ, through their new birth, they were born again, he becomes their father in Christ. So for the new believer, right, this idea of spiritual fatherhood comes about through who leads us to Christ, and then who trains us up or who teaches us how to follow on that path. That's the role of spiritual fatherhood, right? And the the attachment with it, though, is that there's going to be seasons of lives, and maybe you've experienced this or not, where you're doing a good job following Christ, and then you're going to do a not-so-good job in following Christ. And in the process of that, that person who has that realm of a parental spiritual figure, they have the responsibility, but they also have the permission to guide you and correct you when needed. Whereas a pastor, you kind of have this choice, right? As a sheep, you could decide to be obstinate, And you could say, uh, not so much. You can choose to say, uh, I'll find a different shepherd. You can say, I don't recognize your voice. And you can go somewhere else, find a new shepherd. Or the alternative of that too is that you could not actually be a sheep. You could be a wolf and you could just reap havoc in a local church or, or the church down the street. And really understand, you might, you might think that you're, you're walking this life, but really, if you have nobody to affirm that what you're actually obeying is Christ, then you are lost. You are misguided. You're not being pastored. 
So pastoring is important, but fatherhood acknowledges this. It acknowledges that no matter how far off that spiritual child is, your responsibility is to pray for them, to even grieve for them, to find them, to encourage them, right? A father, you can't, you can't but help be a father. There's nothing you can do to stop being a father. You remember your child. Whereas a pastor would be irresponsible if that sheep decided it is no longer a sheep to that shepherd, but continue to follow. So Jesus shares a parable about the, there's, there's 100 sheep, 99 follow the shepherd, one, one gets lost. So let's make that clear. It gets lost by, by accident. So that, this could be, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're in a battle with sin. This could be you, you made a decision that wasn't necessarily through the guidance of the Holy Spirit. It gets lost. It gets a little bit off course. The job of the shepherd is everybody else is still on course. I'm going to go after the one and make sure that it's okay. I'm going to bring it back into the flock because it's still a part of the flock, because it's still a sheep. The, it's not true if that sheep decided, if that sheep never was able to respond to that pastor's voice, then guess what? It's not a part of the flock. Furthermore, if that sheep is actually biting other sheep, it's probably not a sheep, it's a wolf. Okay? I'm sweating now. It's like I just had a wrestling match. All right. So staying in 1 Corinthians 4, in verse 18, it says this. Some of you become, have become arrogant as if I were not coming to you. So Paul's writing them a letter, obviously. But I will come to you very soon if the Lord is willing, and then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. So he's addressing some teachers, some some leaders who have assumed leadership but haven't been doing a very very great job. And so that that can be a that can be a case too. Sometimes a pastor could just not be doing a very good job. And uh when that's the case, I think it's still important to remember that you know this is the house of God. God's in control of the, of the church, right? the church lowercase c, the church capital C, he's in control of the church. So, like, he appoints pastors. And so, Paul, in verse the first verse in chapter 4, he talks about not being judged. So, he knows what he's called to do, and he does it. He's an apostle, and he appoints, two these local leaders. And uh, he says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. So Paul's coming into a church correcting, right? And he says, what do you prefer? Shall I come with a rod of discipline or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? So he wants to know, what kind of father do you want? Do you want a father that's going to come with correction? Do you want a a father that's going to come with love and gentleness? He gives them the option. So what does this mean for us as a congregation? I run the risk of categorizing us, but I, I mentioned before about these, these uh, how we relate to the pastor themselves or how we relate to the church at large. And um, so I asked, how would, how would that pastor of that former church you would at, if they were to give you a recommendation, what would it sound like? Okay? Or even right now, where, where you've planted yourself, what kind of recommendation would you be able to get? And so, I don't know on my on my behalf, what Jesse would say about me. Um, but here's what I decided when I started coming to this church. I said to myself, if Jesse and Jared asked me to do anything, 
I was like, I will not say no. Okay? And I, 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 I can't say I've done that perfectly. But um, for the most part, I feel like when they asked me to do something, I, I said to myself, I was like, you know, I, I feel called to ministry. I still, I still love Jesus as far as I can tell. Um, and uh, so if they asked me to do anything in a church setting, I was like, I'll, I'll, I'll say yes. And so I, when it comes to recommendation, I hope they have good things to say. But here are some recommendations that I feel like we, could, we need to evaluate and see. What, what would the people before us or the churches that we've been a part of before, what would they say? They could say one. They were destructive to this body. They could say, two, I have little to no recollection of who you're talking about. They could say, three, I know who they are, and uh, they showed up. They, They were a part of service. They could say, four, they serve the church and are missed, and I'm happy to recommend and affirm their presence in your congregation. You're blessed to have them. Or five. We would love if they ever came back. They're family. I wish they could be with us now. I pray for them regularly. Bring them back here, but if they're really called there, then have them. We, we really want them back. So you could get, you know, there's probably more recommendations you could get, but those are just my five. First Samuel, I told you that we're going to cover um, tons and tons of chapters. And the reason why is because it, it talks about the life of David. And so David, I think, is a good illustration of one, a pastor, a shepherd, and then a father, but also a leader. So we all know, hopefully, that David was a king, right? But he started out as a shepherd boy, which, again, we're changing that word pastor, or interchanging that word pastor and shepherd because they mean essentially the same thing. But David was also a father. So I'm going to recount to you the story of David in record time, okay? So he's a shepherd, that saves his sheep from the mouths of lions and bears. So he says this when he's fighting Goliath. He tells King Saul, he's like, I have fought for my sheep, and I have saved them out of the mouth of lions and bears. I've killed lions, I've killed bears. He's chosen to be king and serves as a servant to King Saul as a court musician. He becomes Saul's son-in-law and the best friend of King Saul's son, Jonathan. He is almost murdered twice by that same king. David flees alone the kingdom until he eventually shepherds a group of ragtag mercenaries and their families called David's mighty men. 1 Samuel 22, 1-2 says this, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adam. There is uh, where he was before. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. So this is the same household that when he was anointed king by Samuel, all those other brothers were lined up, and David was out shepherding. And Samuel goes down the line and basically says, nope, none of these people are going to be king. Do you have any more children? And David gets called in, and he's anointed king. So David, who's on the run, now manages to get his father and his whole household which seemingly, according to Scripture, through no act of his own, they find him. Then, not only does his family find him, it says this, and everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul, gathered to him. And he became commander over them, and there were with him about 400 men. That sounds like an awesome church, right? That sounds, so your whole family, 
Hopefully you have an awesome family. But if your whole family, all the people that down the line were thought to be king before you, your dad decided not to invite you to the meeting, right? Then you, you show up on the battlefield to about to slay Goliath, but you bring your brothers ten cheeses, it says in Scripture. Ten cheeses. I love cheese. He brings them to his, fa- his brothers on the battlefield, and they ridicule him for, for saying, oh, you think you're going to take on that giant? Give me the cheese and leave. Okay, so that whole family meets him in the wilderness. On top of it, you get everyone who's in distress, everyone who's in debt, everyone who's bitter in soul. Yes, this is a vibrant church. And he became commander over them, and there were with him about 400 men. Something tells me that David did not say this. He did not say, you know what, I want to lead you people. He probably said, I'm going to do my thing. Right, And if you want to follow me, that's cool, but I don't know how this thing's going to work. So what happens afterwards? This group that willingly follows him, their company continues to grow. He's not drafting the service of anyone, but, they, but he's also not rejecting anyone either. He's saying, if you're willing to follow, if you're willing to go with me on this mission, wherever it leads, then we'll go there. Once they follow him, they obey eagerly. After many battles with his company, David eventually after a very long time, becomes king of Judah. That's only a small part of Israel. He becomes king of Judah. After years of tested wilderness journey, he becomes king of Judah. Eventually, there's another king set up over the rest of Israel. This guy named Abner, who was with the king of, king of Israel, eventually jumps ship. He joins David's group. But his, David's commander-in-chief, Joab, kills Abner. So David mourns over Abner, but eventually David becomes king of Israel. David spends most of his life shepherding. He shepherds people. He pastors. He leads a kingdom. He weeps over the death of Saul who tried to kill him. He weeps over the death of his best friend Jonathan. He weeps over the death of Abner, but he becomes king of all Israel and God makes a promise to David to establish his kingdom forever. How is God going to do that? David needs kids, right? Because David's not going to live forever. So though David spends most of his time shepherding, he eventually becomes a father. So he spends time as a pastor. And sometimes in pastoral ministry, when you're in a church, you'll get a pastor. You'll get somebody who will lead. He'll lead because he's called to lead. He'll lead the church in the direction he thinks he could go. And you, you, your experience with pastors might be different. Your experience with churches are different. And, and people lead through different ways. But the thing is, not every pastor is also has the heart of a father. Right? They, ha- they might father their kids great. They, for their children, they father their children. But they might not have a, a heart of a father for a whole congregation. You might not always get that. But God's placed him there nonetheless. But for David, he eventually had the heart of the father. It said David was a man after God's own heart. And somehow, the heart of God as a father was imparted to David. Because guess what? His best friend, Jonathan, who died, he adopts Jonathan's crippled son, Mephibosheth, and says, you can eat at the king's table for the rest of your life. Mephibosheth, by all means, he was, he was crippled. He didn't have a lot to offer the kingdom other than his presence. Okay? And David says, you can eat at this table. You can stay with me. He gives that to his best friend's son. He adopts him into the household. But David has other children too. And some of them aren't 
aren't through the best means. He has a child with Bathsheba through an adulterous relationship. She has, he has her husband killed. And that son falls ill in infancy. It's, only, it's just born, but it's an ill child. And it says in Scripture that David fasts and prays, weeps over this child. But guess what? He barely even ever has time to know it because it dies in seven days. Then David has this idea that he wants to build a kingdom or temple for God to dwell in. And David has another son named Solomon. But David has lots of other kids too. His oldest son named Ammon gets killed by his other son Absalom. And then Absalom, one of his kids, decides to overthrow the kingdom. If you never read the book A Tale of Three Kings, it's, it's pretty good. It's back there for sale. But Absalom overthrows the kingdom. His own son overthrows the kingdom. And again, his commander-in-chief, Joab, I'm using that term wrong, but, but anyway, Joab, Joab kills David's son, Absalom. And you know what David does? He mourns the death of his son who took the kingdom from him. He's mourning, weeping. The heart of a father still weeps over his children even when they not just get lost, not like the prodigal, but even when they are militantly against the father. A heart of a father can't help but be a father. So then David eventually gets the kingdom back because Absalom dies. And David, though he's old, apparently didn't learn many lessons because he decides to take a census of all of Israel. He's trying to count the number of people in his congregation. At one point, it didn't matter. At one point, he was leading 400 people in the wilderness not knowing where he was going. Then it grew to 600. He, did, he still didn't know where he was going. He just knew that he had an anointing to be king. But then when he's king in his old life, he decides to take a census to see, oh, how many people do I have? Things are going pretty good. Our kingdom's doing pretty good. How many people do I have? He makes a mistake. He has to repent. God calls him to repent. David, though a leader, still has prophetic voices in his life. From a pastor and from a father, every father has to be fathered. Every pastor has to be pastored. So David still has these voices. He's got Nathan the prophet. He's got Samuel the prophet. He's got other voices in his life that hold him accountable. We talked about the qualifications of an elder or a pastor before. The beautiful thing about pastoral ministry. The beautiful thing about Jesse as our pastor is that he's accountable to other prophetic voices, other fathering voices in our life. We need to model that same thing for for new believers. We need to be able to say, I have these voices in my life. I want these voices in my life. That's sometimes even harder. Guess what? When I was confronted by the champion of that promotion, I did not want to hear that voice at that time because I already knew I'd messed up. But The reality was when I went out and talked to him face to face alone, I understood more of his heart as to what he was saying. And that was not even in a church context. In a church context, when you're corrected, sometimes the best thing you could do, or or maybe you're not even corrected, maybe you're just lost and you don't know what you're doing here, maybe the best thing you can do is talk to the pastor, talk to somebody in leadership and say, hey, look, I I need direction. So close to the end of David's life, he takes that census there's punishment for it. But the last thing we see about David is not even in First or Second Samuel. It's in First Kings. Bathsheba and her son Solomon, they come to David and they say, hey, look, if you don't appoint a successor, somebody's going to take this kingdom and, and run with it. 
So David has to anoint his son. He makes sure even at the end of his life, even at the end of his term, he anoints and, and promotes somebody else. How, how often, I mean, I, I don't know from your experience, but I, I've been in this thing for a little bit to know that it's very, very rare that somebody promotes somebody else to be a head pastor. So many times, it's a pastor getting voted out. It's a pastor compromising themselves and they're, 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 they have to leave or, or a pastor burns out or doesn't want to let go of their ministry. But, but how often do we see that a pastor promotes the next pastor? Hopefully it happens more often than not. So David's held accountable and he, and he passes on his kingdom. He passes on his leadership. He acknowledges his time comes soon, and he acknowledges his, his, his death. But he doesn't leave the people without a leader, right? How does this relate back to pastoral ministry? Is that God doesn't ever leave us without a leader. He doesn't leave us without somebody to shepherd us. He doesn't even leave us without someone to father us. It's just a matter of are, are we in touch with who he's called us to follow? Are we in touch with who he's called us to say, hey, look, there's no way that any of us are going to get through this thing being lone rangers in faith. That's not going to happen. Even David in the wilderness still had prophets that came to him. Even though he was out on his own, he wasn't on his own. 1 Thessalonians 2, 7, 12. This is our last verse if the worship team could come forward. I know we talked heavily about fatherhood, but, but when I'm talking about a spiritual father or spiritual mother, it, it goes both ways. This isn't just a, a gender thing. It's, it's a matter of somebody who's leading you in, in faith. It says this, but we gentle among you like a nursing mother. So Paul's referring to himself as a nursing mother, taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. But you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses and God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. I want to read verses 11 and 12 again. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you, encouraged you, and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom. So it's the last Sunday in October, Pastor Appreciation Month's nearing its end. I just want us to again honor Jesse and Ashley who who model spiritual father and motherhood. They let people into their household. They let people into their lives. They say, will you pray with us, for us? May we pray with and for you. They model what Paul's talking about there in 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 to 12. Like a, like a mother desiring, like a father. It hits close to home for me because for those of you who don't know, I live with Jesse and Ashley. They treat me better than I deserve, honestly. Can we actually 
before I want, I want to share once I want to share a story, but first I want to pray for uh, Jesse and Ashley. So would everybody actually just extend your hands? Can we pray for them? God, we just thank you. We honor those who you've chosen, God, to, to be shepherds in this house. God, we thank you for them. God, spiritual fathers and mothers, God, for those who are able to call them that much. God, who are that close to them. God, we just thank you. We honor them. We say continue to strengthen them. God, continue to do your affirming work in their hearts and minds. God, we affirm them. We say, God, thank you for them. God, let us have ears to hear where they lead and direct. God, let us heed their wisdom when they share it. God, continue to strengthen them as parents to alien faith. God, continue to bless them and meet their needs as they look and and discern the needs of this congregation. God, thank you for elders that you're raising up in this church. God, thank you that you do not leave us alone as a congregation. God, I thank you even for this congregation. God, for the the fact that every baptized believer might be called, might actually be called to pastor somebody else. Lord, for those of us that are new to faith, God, encourage our hearts. Lord, let whatever needs to stick, let it stick from this message. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to share one more story, and then if you join me in worship. Jesse talked about Haley earlier and about how she says, says, you know, I love God more than you, haha. And uh, the, a couple days ago, um, it's funny because children sometimes can preach to you more than a 45-minute sermon can. And uh, so if nothing else sticks, hopefully this will. But I was in my room, and sometimes uh, I'm home the same time that Haley and Faith are in the afternoon. It's not usually the case. Usually I'm out studying or doing something else. But uh, occasionally they'll come up to my room because I live on the third floor, and they'll just play, they'll jump around. And I was just studying, and uh, Haley looks up, and I promise you my room is not filled with wrestling action figures. But there is, there is one, and um, he's hanging from the Eiffel Tower. And uh, she looks up and she says, Jimmy, why do you love wrestling figures? She goes, or guys, I forget what she said, but why do you love wrestling guys? And then she goes, I, I said, I don't know. And she's like, well... I bet that you love Jesus more than you love wrestling figures. And I was like, yeah, I do. I think I do, yeah. And uh, I do. And she says, yeah, me too. And I just think about that like, really what all this is about is that we're just trying to love Jesus, right? And some of us are learning how to do that because you're trying to love a man who is God and who isn't really just walking down this aisle right now, but has left his spirit with us. And so we have models of people who have understood what Jesus is is saying and doing. But at the end of the day, we're looking at other people who love Jesus and we're saying where they are in their love, where they are in their walk, that's where I want to be. And we need help to learn how to do that. Like, I still don't know how to do that to the best of my ability, but I want to because I am convinced of this much that he's worth loving. And so I hope you're convinced of that too. I hope you've had an encounter with God that says, that's ruined you for nothing else, that says Jesus has proven himself to me. That revelation has taken hold of our heart. 
and we can remember how good God is to us and we can remember that he's called people into our lives that can model what it means to live as Christ.